All right, well, we come to the end of our series heat, and I have to say, this has been fun. I, actually, wait, check that. Uh, this has been challenging, I think, honestly, to talk honestly about love, and in particular, sex. Um, I'm hoping this has been insightful and encouraging as well to you, whether you're single, you're married, maybe you're starting over. Um, in fact, I have some exciting news to report. Apparently, all this talk about being a man with a plan has kind of lit a fire under some of our guys here at Liquid. In fact, our own sight and sound director here in Morristown, Joel Freeman, last week asked Meg Brooks to be his wife, actually. Here's a picture of them. Can we hear it for, for Joel and Meg? Good job, guys. Very exciting. Meg, some of you guys know, she's worked with your children, actually, at Liquid Kids. She is the daughter of our executive pastor, Dave Brooks. So this is very exciting. Joel, you're marrying up. Way to go, dude. Um, but this is, hey, I told you guys, there are some plums to be picked at this church. So this is just exciting to see. Um, at the same time, there's actually a couple of other decisions that couples are making that I think are worth celebrating. Um, quite honestly, last week, a couple came up to one of our, our campus pastors and said, you know what? We actually are living together, um, and it's been something we've been struggling with because we're not sure if we're going to get married and everything, but whatever we do, we want to bring our relationship under God's banner. And so he talked with them and they made the decision to actually move out, which is huge. That is hard. That is difficult. It makes no practical sense. I mean, our world says not only take the quickest route to the fruit, but just do what pays the bills. And quite honestly, this is going to stretch them financially. It's actually going to be kind of a setback in some as they take a step back from the marital bond that they've been building in their relationship. But I thought that was one of the most courageous moves. Can we actually hear it for that couple? That is actually a hugely, hugely brave move. And we want to celebrate that step of, of maturity. Um, here's the God's honest truth, guys. The Bible never promises that relationships done God's way are easy. In fact, just the opposite. It actually says um, it's usually harder. <laughs> and, and I'm not telling you that to, to scare you or judge you in any way. Um, we're not trying to make you feel bad if you're living uh, you know, together or in a sinful situation. I'm telling you because I love you. Our, your campus pastors love you. And, and we want God's best for you. And, and, and that's why we're just trying to tell you the straight up truth about this. Um, honestly, I could try to sugarcoat this or spin this or kind of make it, you know, pretend the Bible isn't authoritative. You know, it's kind of more of a suggestion than a command. Um, but that's not love. That's actually cowardice. And, and I love you. And your campus pastor loves you. And, and honestly, we're like, we're going to take the hard road. So we're going to hold the line on this and we're actually going to tell the truth. And it is the road less traveled. And, um, and that's what I appreciate most about the Song of Solomon. Because although it's an idealized portrait um, of biblical relationships with the goal of marriage, it, it shows this progression of men actually leading as men, women doing their, repart, their, their part to respond with respect and honor the man, and both of them together committing to safeguard the integrity of their relationship before marriage. And then once married, well, honestly, it doesn't get any easier. <laughs> That whole happily ever after, we know where that's found. That's actually not in the Bible. That's in fairy tales. And the Song of Solomon is not actually a fairy tale. This is the real world. And people don't magically live happily ever after. In fact, in Song of Solomon, once their honeymoon is over, that's when they have their first fight. It's a very realistic thing. They call it a honeymoon for a reason. Because when you wake up the next day and the day after that and the day after that, and you actually realize, my goodness, I think I married a sin sinful person. <laughs> Just like me. <laughs> well, that's when the adventure starts, quite honestly. And, and I tell engaged couples, I actually said to Joel, I said, don't focus on the wedding. Anyone can do a big wedding, you know, a big Italian wedding or whatever it is you want to do. Focus on the marriage. Because it's what starts the day after the wedding 
that really makes all the difference and counts in God's eyes. So um, I understand single folks, that's why you may feel intimidated in married couples. That may be honestly why you feel discouraged. Because keeping the flames of passion lit, it's hard. That is hard, isn't it? I mean, you wave that banner long enough, your arms get tired. <laughs> and uh, happily ever after, it's a fairy tale. But here's the deal. Our text today deals with the real world. Um, we received a ton of text questions from married couples this week who are struggling. Um, some of them are newly married, and they're struggling, and we have to find their groove. And some are actually miles into the journey. And quite honestly, they're thinking about packing it in. And so this one text question I thought was a good representative of all of them. It says this, we've been married seven years and neither of us is happy. Did I marry the wrong person? Should we split up? And I think this honestly just gets at the nub of things, especially this, this illusion of happily ever after. Because, because we honestly do assume if I'm in a relationship and I'm not happy, then I must not be in love with that person anymore. That, that's what we assume, or I married, I married the wrong person. Let, let me try to shoot as straight as I can uh, on this. It takes about nine years in a marriage to go from me to we. The first nine years of marriage are all about me. How can I get my way? How can she do what I want or make him do what I want most of the time? It's all about me, selfishness. And after about a decade, God whacks you upside the head, and it's called reality, honestly. And, and you start realizing marriage isn't so much about happiness as it is about holiness. And this is a paradigm shift. Happiness is what makes me happy. Holiness asks, how am I becoming more like Christ through this experience? They're asking two fundamentally different questions. Holiness actually says, how can I actually give up more of my life for the one that I now love and serve him or her like Christ served me? And this is a paradigm shift. Because we don't look at marriage through this lens. But this is the biblical lens that is first about holiness and then about happiness. Happiness is actually a byproduct of holiness. And it's the only way you can make it through hard times. Because feelings in your relationship will flatline, guaranteed. They will. But if you realize marriage is about holiness, you start realizing actually the struggles, the hardships you're enduring are actually shaping and chipping away at your heart. Hopefully not stealing it in resentment or bitterness. That's what happens sometimes. But actually stretching and expanding it. See, beyond my own immediate needs and desires and want what works for me, rather what's best for we. How can I love you? How can I serve you in the kitchen, in the bed? How can I encourage you? And as both partners, you begin reorienting your life around that lens. A beautiful dance can actually start to take place. The problem is this. Statistically speaking, most people, the majority of people, get divorced before year nine. And they restart the whole thing. They go through the lean times and say, I'm not happy, and conclude they married the wrong person. They, they, they don't get the purpose of marriage. It's first about holiness, becoming like Christ, and then about happiness, getting my needs met. One is actually a byproduct of the other, and here's the paradox. Just If you hear nothing else today, listen to this. If you go for holiness in a marriage, you may eventually get happiness thrown in. But if you go for happiness first, you get neither. Catch that? Some seasons of marriage, you have to simply survive. There are tough times. There are bad stretches of road. There are adjustments to make all over the place. First year, living together, that's an adjustment. Having kids, major adjustment. You go through a job loss, a financial crisis, adjustments. And most couples don't make it through that. They actually, they get divorced, they start all over again. Of course, you have to actually go through and repeat the most painful years of formation in the entire experience. But mark this. When feelings flatline, when you feel unhappy, that's often when God is, is ready to do a deeper work, if you're open to it. 
Because patience and perseverance are being forged on that anvil. And if you are willing to reprioritize the larger goal of marriage to become more of a servant like Christ Jesus, how can God change me? Not change him, not change her. How can God change me? All sorts of options open up. You may not only make it through the process, you may actually get happiness too. Because you actually learn to serve. You learn to care. And guess what? Intimacy grows. The sex gets better. Things intensify. And some incredible things happen. Pleasure can actually multiply itself in the marriage. And happiness eventually comes into view again. And again, that's not a one-size-fits-all answer, guys. I I realize there are a thousand different situations and stories you're facing out there. But I want to offer you a new lens to consider. Some of you have never thought about this. If you think marriage is first and foremost about happiness, you will likely be disappointed. That is the God's honest truth. But if you adopt the biblical perspective, marriage first and foremost about holiness, you may get happiness as a byproduct. One comes out of the other. It's not easy, it is hard, but it's deeply rewarding. Because at its best, when both are serving one another, marriage can be fun, it can be erotic, it can be full of love and friendship, and at its best, it's a mirror of the way Christ Jesus loves you and me. A love that sacrificed everything for his bride, right? And a love that is one day going to make us, what? Holy. That's what's going on in, in, in heaven. It's not it's happy. It's holiness, flawlessness. We actually become like Christ, and that's how God sees on our wedding day. Are you tracking with me? All right? Okay, that's our lens for today. So what I want to do with our last session together is just get as honest and practical as I can here about some of the cha- uh, challenges that, uh, that married couples are facing today. Uh, many of them are sex-related. Surprised by that. Uh, so parents, let me give you guys a heads up. This is, uh, this is PG-13, all right? So I am not going to be uh, crude or crass, but the Bible is very frank and honestly refreshing because it's practical about marriage and sex. So use discernment. I got this text this week. It says this, my kids are seven and nine. How old should they be before we have the talk? Uh, first thing that needs to be said, it's not a talk. <laughs> it's an ongoing conversation. This is what, if you think this is a one-time event, we got problems. This needs to be an ongoing point of discussion uh, you want to open up with your kids. And that's what I hope this series is doing for some of you. Just opening up a conversation with middle schoolers or high schools and actually give them biblical lens through which they can see God's picture of what biblical relationships and healthy sexuality involves. Um, as I mentioned, statistically, the, uh, the average child is exposed, first exposure to internet pornography is at age 10 or 11. So if you're waiting, mom or dad, until they're teens to have that talk, too late. You need to own that conversation and, uh, and don't avoid the hard stuff or, or get real, you know, anxious about it because they, they will quickly get the message. Your mom and dad are weirded out by that. So I'll ask my friends at school. You don't want that. This is one of the goals of our church. We want to get this conversation on the grid with your kids. Sex is not something dirty. It's something we talk candidly about. In church, mom and dad care about it. They talk about it, and the Bible has answers about it, practical questions. We want to see dialogues open up, not just parent and teen, but husbands and wives, and that's what we're going to do. So let's, let's dive in and tackle the tough stuff. Are you ready? Let's do this. Take your Bible. Take it with you on your seat. Turn with me to Song of Songs. We are in chapter 2. That's on page 471. If I can remind you, if you're just joining us, you're like, what is this all about? King Solomon spied this peasant girl working in his vineyards one day. He took the initiative. He pursued her. He courted her. He didn't just actually pursue her. He protected her. The banner over her is 
Love, awesome. He, he actually safeguarded their, their integrity before their marriage. And they had a great honeymoon. We had a great honeymoon last week. We saw this amazing, full-bodied, unashamed sexual exchange last week. And they shook the raisins. But here in Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 15, Solomon says this. He says, Catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards, our vineyards that are in bloom. Um, in Solomon's day, obviously, Middle East, you had a vineyard, you cultivated it, you took care of it. It took a lot of hard work, you harvested it. Marriage is like that. It takes a lot of hard work, it takes pruning, it takes attention so that it can live and grow and be fruitful, right? And Solomon's saying, foxes naturally try to sneak into the vineyard. They, 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 they sneak in and they eat the fruit and they gnaw the root and they ruin the whole thing. So little foxes in this context are likely the little things that ruin a relationship. They gnaw the fruit right off the vine of any marriage. And every marriage has little foxes that come in, okay? They're small. You don't notice them. They're sneaky. (laughs) And they destroy relationships before they even have a a chance to mature and blossom and grow into something beautiful. So what I want to do today is just call out a few of the little foxes that typically threaten godly relationships. Um, Colleen and I have been married for over 10 years now, and we know what foxes look like. In fact, we've got two of them kind of always running around our vineyard every morning. We know. Try to get under the gate there. But when he says, catch for us the foxes, he's talking about the things that, that actually can drive a wedge into your relationship and ruin the vineyard. And honestly, a lot of your text questions kind of fall under this category, so I'm going to kind of thread your questions throughout this. But the first little fox that uh, you see Solomon bring up is in the next verse. The woman says this. She says, My lover is mine, and I am his. He browses among the lilies. Obviously, she's talking about sex. We've learned this by now, right? Browsing among the lilies. Uh, You know, by now, you know what he's talking about. Every time you hear about flowers or pomegranates, you're like, oh, you know. (laughs) But that's what she's talking about here. But I want you to look at her use of possessives. What does she say? She says, my lover is what? Mine, and I am his. Notice the possessive language. It's about mutual ownership. So in a wedding, you not only give your vow to give yourself to that person, but you're literally saying, I, I literally give my body to you. In a very real way, you're saying, you know, I'm not my own anymore. I am Colleen's. Colleen actually lays claim. She has a right to me, to my body, to my whole person, as I do to hers. Again, that's a reflection. That's not like weird. It's a reflection of what it means to be a Christian. I'm giving my life to Jesus. He lays claim to my entire life. I belong to him. And that's what she's getting at here. She says, my lover is mine. He belongs to me. I am his. She belongs to him. And the context of this is their sexual relationship, which elegantly raises this question. What do you do when one spouse wants to be intimate more frequently than the other? Here's how one of you put it in your text question. A guy typed in, he said, my wife doesn't seem to enjoy or want sex as much as I do. She's always holding out. I love that, always holding out. Uh, Suggestions. What I liked about that question is that about four questions after that was a question written by a woman who wrote, we don't do it nearly as much as my husband demands. He's always badgering me. What do I do? I love that. It's probably the same people. Anyway, quite a, this honestly is one of the greatest sources of conflict in most marriages. And the answer is embedded in this issue of mutual ownership. Um, it is no secret. We talked about it last week. Generally speaking, the husband's desire for sex is often more frequent than the wife. That's a generalization. I'm sure there are exceptions to that. You don't need to email me, okay? I just don't get a lot of, a ton of guys saying, hey, I, dude, I, I don't know what to do. I got to chase her off with a stick, man. She's always after me. I don't get that. 
I, I, I don't, all right? Maybe it's there, but if that's you, dude, that's, <laughs> that's your cross to bear, man. Just, just, you just thank God for that. It's awesome. But that's what Paul's getting at. And here's what I want to do. Flip over the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 7, okay? It's on page 794. Put your finger there. Um, Paul writes this. He says, The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise, the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to who? To her, her husband. There's ownership. In the same way, the husband's body doesn't belong to him, but also to who? To his wife, right? Possession. Your body's no longer your own. That goes for both of you. So in other words, when you withhold yourself sexually from your spouse... In a very real way, in a sense, you are robbing him or her of what is rightfully theirs. Marital duty. What's marital duty? That literally the synonym is responsibility. What you promised to give him or her before God, you are now saying, that's over. Oftentimes, one partner in a marriage tends to hold the majority of kind of sexual control. In other words, they kind of, kind of determine the, the, the how, the when, the frequent, that frequency, the how long, the lovemaking occurs. And quite honestly, often because I think just biological necessity, oftentimes it's the woman who's kind of the gatekeeper. Um, just because the wife, just practical stuff, menstrual cycles, pregnancy, longer warm-up time, all that stuff. And sometimes the husband can start resenting that she's the gatekeeper. Because the gate's always getting slammed in my face, <laughs> right? She never wants sex, ever. Now, that's absolutistic language, and it's not the reality, but it's hurtful. Or she feels constantly under pressure for it. I've known guys who make impossible demands of their wives, because they're always asking, always kind of angling and pressuring. There's no such thing as just a hug, right? It's always a hug and. You make her feel like a piece of meat, and that mentality goes like this. Well, I own her, man. She does what I want. I take what I want when I want it. And you know what? Both of those are abuse. Both of those are actually abusive. I, I don't mean, I don't mean like sexual abuse. What I mean is that when one spouse withholds from the other or manipulates the other to perform, we have sin. Yes, yeah, sin. A failure to love and actually make good on your vows before your God. Again, in, in, in a worldly relationship, we, we, we talk about give and take. There's always a giver and a taker. In a Christian marriage, there's not a giver and a taker. There's just two givers because their God's a giver. That's why it's important that we actually have God actually lead the marriage. One doesn't punish the other by withholding. One doesn't exploit the other by manipulating or forcing their way. Rather, both partners give equally and sacrificially because that's how God's given to them and that's how they vowed to each other before God. That's what marriage is. Paul's saying that the marriage bed has to be this place of mutuality and equality. Equality. It's not how little or how much you can get away with, but it's putting the needs of your spouse actually above your own and using their needs to calibrate your lovemaking. That was, that was the question that we got asked last week. How much is normal? If you remember that for a newly married couple, Colleen said, whatever, you, you know, whatever you're doing, that's normal, um, as long as you're doing it regularly, because there's actually an implicit biblical command here. The reason we're never going to give you a numerical answer is because it's a heart issue. It's not about numbers. It's about the attitude of the heart. It always is. The message paraphrase of Corinthians renders it this way. It says this, um, The marriage bed must be a place of mutuality. The husband seeking to do what? Satisfy his wife. The wife seeking to do what? Satisfy her husband. Marriage is not a place to stand up for your rights. Marriage is a decision to serve the other, whether in bed or out. In other words, you put your mate's needs above your own desires. It's not selfish. It's not stingy. Nor is it greedy. See how much I can get. 
or only willing to do it when it's convenient for me. What Paul writes in verse 5 here in Corinthians, look at this, is the most pivotal command in the entire Bible when it comes to married sex. Listen to how he talks to both husbands and their wives. Listen, he says this. Do not what? Deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to what? To prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, let's just hit the pause button here and consider what Paul is saying here. Because, I mean, this is pretty blunt. This, this is amazing. This is God's word to married couples. And he's like, I got three things for you. You need to know this. Here's what, here are my three desires for you, God says. I want you to do it. Are we shocked by this? Just do it. Do it regularly. Do it normally. Do it with frequency. There actually is an implicit implicit command here that you're actually having regular sex. That's an ongoing regular activity. That's what's normal in God's eyes, that there will be this ongoing intimacy that sex is the culmination of. But then he says this. He says, if you need to take a break, <laughs> do it freely, do it frequently. If you want to stop or take a break, fine, but only for what? Prayer. Then you get back at it. And this is really weird here, right? Because he's like, don't deprive one another. By the way, this, the, the Hebrew for that, or the Greek for that actually is rob. Don't rob one another. So there was a way to say, sorry, store's closed. Sorry, no, 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 no. You can shop in this aisle, not that one. It's less than Christian. He says, do not rob each other except by mutual consent. In other words, unless you guys are talking about it, and you need to take a little time out here so that you can do what? Draw closer to Jesus. So maybe some foxes have gotten into your, into your vineyard. Maybe, maybe, um, maybe uh, your husband's struggling with a porn addiction. You know, we need to take a little time out here and get some help. We need to actually begin praying and becoming clean before God before we come together. Or, or maybe there's, there's been an infidelity or maybe there's distance and we need to take a time out. We actually need to draw close to Jesus first before we come back and draw close to each other. How long should that be? How long? For a time. But then... He's like, you come together again so that what? So that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. This is amazing. Because what he's saying is sexual discontent opens the door to the devil. He's like, you guys take a break, a break that turns into a desert, that takes into an extended hiatus, that turns into months of, non, of non-sexual intimacy. Bring in the foxes! You just opened up the door, bring Satan in. You can lie on this side of bed, you lie in the middle, and we got Prince of the Darkness laying right in the middle of you. <laughs> I mean, you know, th- this is literally, because you're bringing in the foxes of bitterness, you're bringing foxes of anger, of rejection, of hurt, and resentment. Now we're just going kind of through a rough patch. Your spouse will be distorted and thought of as your enemy, not your intimate. That's where that language comes from. He's always taking advantage. She never wants to do it. She's always holding the back. Open the door, bring in the foxes. Because they're going to pick the berries right off your vine and your vineyard will literally rot. I mean, I'm just trying to be as candid as I can about this and I understand that these are complex issues. But, so I'm not, just gonna, I'm not gonna tell you psychologically or therapeutically what to do. I'm just telling you biblically, some of you guys have some major league repentance to do between one another. Before that, actually with God. Wives. Some of you, you've been punishing that guy for some time. And it's not just him you're hurting. You're actually hurting God. You're breaking a vow before the two men in your life. 
you promised you'd give everything to unreservedly. And I understand there's probably a good reason for that. There's probably, in fact, the past four messages you've been like, he doesn't listen, he's not tender, he doesn't care about my heart or my character, all he does is take. I understand there are a million reasons and there's a root issue behind it. But sex is the culmination of how much you guys have invested both in your relationship all along the way. Maybe there's just abuse in your relationship and, and sex is actually attached to negative uh, feelings from past sin or, or hurt or something that happened to you. And you need to get counseling to move past that. Guys, this is not an invitation um, to exploit Paul's teaching. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 15.3 says, Love never demands its own way. So husbands, this isn't like a free pass. Don't write this down, okay? It's like, now I get to guilt and shame and manipulate my wife because she's your partner, not your plaything. And again, the principle is mutual submission. What, is, what does she want? I mean, what do what are, what are your arguments about sex actually look like? What do they sound like? Do they go like this? Hey, what do you want to do tonight, honey? Because whatever, actually, whatever you want to do, that's what I want to do. Is that what goes like? That doesn't typically how it goes in my house, okay? But we're getting there. I've actually learned the power of actually saying, hey, you know what? I know we haven't connected much this past week, and, and quite honestly, man, <laughs> I want to I wanna go to the place of splendor of the gas. I'm a young gazelle, okay? I feel like that. But then I actually say, honestly, sweetheart, I don't want to just have sex, because that's what the world talks about. Just have sex. I want to make love. I want, I want to actually spiritually, physically, emotionally, the totality. So if you don't want to do that tonight, that's like totally fine. If we could make this weekend, though, about that so it would be natural, that would be awesome. And it's amazing because now this dance starts taking place. Now we don't have these weird things going on. Well, I don't know. I have a headache and all. We're just kind of dodging and just kind of getting my own way. I don't want to do this. And Colleen actually knows she can actually say, you know what, hon? I am exhausted. The kids picked every berry off the vine tonight. <laughs> but let's connect this weekend. Are you, are you good with that? Or, or, or how, where are you at? It actually deepens. So here's what I want, husbands and wives. Maybe it's painful conversation. I want you to have a conversation. I want you to actually ask each other tonight about this. And this is going to be hard. I understand that. Here would be, could you have an honest dialogue that goes like this? I want you to first spend 20 minutes just praying together. If you have this conversation, pray together first. Wives, could you dare ask your husband, when do you feel deprived? And just listen. Not get defensive. Not try to answer the question. Not try to get blaming. But just, hey, you know, Tim was talking. Blame me. Blame me. I know Tim was talking about that, and you would never feel that way. But Tim, poor Tim, he's all messed up. Uh, do you ever feel deprived? When is that? Husbands, you ask her, when do you feel taken for granted? Or maybe even taken advantage of at times. Don't, don't defend. Don't justify. Open your ears. Open your heart. Because marriage is mostly about giving, not receiving. And that includes sex. Paul's literally saying, if you truly love God, you will make love to your spouse freely and with frequency. And whenever either of you actually express the need, because you belong to one another as you belong to me. And as you give yourself to one another, it will keep the foxes out and it will keep the enemy out of your marriage. Because he'd like nothing more than to drive a wedge between you two guys, steal your hearts against one another, get you sleeping in separate rooms, and ruin the entire vineyard. Your relationship is supposed to grow and deepen and blossom, not wither on the vine. 
And if you keep the foxes out, guess what? Married sexuality can be a beautiful thing. It can. It can be incredible. I got this one text uh, question that says this. It says, what's legal in the marriage bed? Can we experiment? How far can we go? And I told Pastor Tom, I talked with him after the service. You know, let's just take this offline, Tom. Uh, but we got every variation, honestly, of this question. Actually, it was a frequent question. You know, it was like questions about oral sex. Can we use toys? There's all sorts, that kind of thing. For me, I'd like to flip back, honestly, to Song of Solomon, chapter 4. Um, just flip there real quickly. In verses 4 through 12, or 12, 14, Solomon describes his wife this way. This is instructive. It says this. You are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. And this is a beautiful piece of Hebrew poetry, and it, it revolves around this metaphor of a garden locked up. You guys know this. Uh, we talked about it. In the Middle East, hot sun, arid desert, desolation. Gardens were treasured places of great beauty. Why? Because people went there to rest as a refuge for the sun, and it's where they were refreshed from the desert heat. And they were so highly prized that they were typically surrounded by very high rock walls or imposing gates that only the landowners had access to. You couldn't just go in and enter it. You had to enter only by invitation. The person, only one person had the key. And so Solomon here is praising his wife's purity. She's like, he's like, you're a garden locked up. Again, other men haven't gotten in. In other words, ladies, you are a private garden, not a public park. We got this? There's just kind of a little rebuke against the hoochie mama syndrome going on, 21st century. You're a public, or you're a private garden, not a public park. And Solomon's like, I'm the rightful owner of this garden. And that's literally what happens at a wedding. At the marriage altar, God is like handing that man a sacred charter. And he's like, you are free to enter it, explore it, and enjoy it. And so Solomon starts exploring. Look what he says, verse 13. This is interesting. He says, your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, with henna and nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with every kind of incense tree, with myrrh and aloes and all the finest spices. Notice, in other words, there's variety in this garden. There's things that arouse this man's senses, the pomegranates, the nard, the cinnamon. We got aromatherapy going on. We got nard, we got lotions, we got aloe. I'm just going to leave it at that, okay? It's not a Kama Sutra moment. The point is this. The Bible encourages creativity and sensuousness between a husband and wife. In other words, a full-bodied, Biblical lovemaking experience is supposed to impact all our senses. Um, I've alluded to the fact that men are visually hardwired. We are very easily aroused by what we see. However, we're also energized by what we smell, touch, taste, all of it. And when Solomon describes his wife this way, it's God's way of encouraging us to be sensuous lovers. Not sensual, make the distinction, but appeal to the five senses. So wives, practically speaking, what does that mean? That means... You need to take the time and energy to create an environment and wear the kinds of things that you know your husband will actually respond to. I know I'm like totally treading on thin ice right here. I gotta be real careful in this next 30 seconds. It's like make or break, okay? But when you, wives, when you get married and you put that MRS in front of your name, it doesn't stand for Miss Rummage Sale. So in other words, you know, the, 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 the flannel nightgown with the holes in it that looks like Swiss cheese. <laughs> Every night, get the hair, the whole thing, okay? I, I, we ought, life pickpockets us of the stuff that made a huge difference early on in our, in our relationship. And it means we actually need to take the time to lock the gate and let the orchard bloom. <laughs> 
And let there be everything. It should means you should welcome, in a very literal way, oils, candles, lotions, whatever it is to cultivate a secret garden. That's the, that's the image there. In an Getty, right? In an oasis, in your bedroom. That communicate to your man that you're ready for him to relax, to be refreshed, and to explore. There is a great book that I can recommend to you. It's by a Christian psychologist, marriage therapist named Dr. Doug Rosenau. It is actually called The Celebration of Sex, A Guide to Enjoying God's Gifts of Married Sexual Pleasure. And uh, it is excellent. It is excellent. Because he totally challenges the stereotypical Christian kind of pleasure-phobic um, attitudes. He's very biblical. I mean, we've learned how as we follow God's biblical guidelines for sexual intimacy, our marriages actually are very rewarded. Um, but the book covers everything from the science of arousal, birth control, oral sex, use of toys, all that stuff I don't have time for to get into, but it goes into detail biblically about breaking down inhibitions and encourages couples to actually be playful and open to new experiences. Um, he's got like entire chapters are devoted like sensual massage, mutual pleasuring, what does making love really mean to males and females? Highly recommended. And the main reason is because godly sexuality is supposed to be what? Creative. I mean, let me ask a very obvious question here. Is lovemaking more of an art or more of a science? Which is it? I mean, the science of arousal. Think about the Song of Songs. Is this written like a VCR manual? No, it's what? It's poetry. It is artistic. That is God's chosen genre. In other words, lovemaking is an art. It's not a science, which means that should never become mechanical or predictable, Mr. Roboto. You know, same time just before going to sleep, same place, second bedroom on the right, same frequency, six times a week, single guys, that was a total joke, stop. That is a total joke, okay, back off that thing. Oh man, some just like, wait, what did you, you say? You know what the only difference between a rut and a grave is? Depth. <laughs> Variation is the spice of, of lovemaking. God does not want marriages to go flat or your sex life to lapse into dull routine. Uh, I remember when I was in high school, this is kind of funny because I was still at home, and I remember my parents started to go on these mini getaways on weekends, and they were like, you know, you're staying home with your brother, we're leaving town, and we're like, where are you going? The funny thing was, they didn't go anywhere. They literally went two towns over to the local Sheraton Hotel. And I was like, I don't get this, Ted. They're, they're, they're just like, oh, and they're just like, two t they're not even going anywhere. They just go to this hotel. I was like, and I could never figure out why. And it was like, well, duh. When you got kids like kicking in the gate of that garden and trampling all over the flowers, and sometimes you got to take that garden on the road. You got to go on a road trip here, a little change of venue, because it's essential to a lasting marriage. Guard that principle fiercely in your marriage. Remember, God's the, the commitments goes this way: my commitments to God first, to her or him second, and then the kids. They're welcomed into the garden, but they don't own it. A child-centric home can destroy a marriage just as quickly as an affair can. I know that sounds harsh, because I grew up like, well, you got to focus on the family. No, 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 no. Your wife, your husband comes before the kids, because that's God's pecking order. They come after your mate. Why? Because quite honestly, the most powerful lesson you can teach your children is for them to know how much daddy loves mommy, and how much mommy is fiercely committed to daddy. It's almost more important for them to know that than how committed you are to them. Because they'll deduce that. They'll get that. But the reality is this. Some of you guys, you got three or four or five little foxes running around your house every morning. And that's tough, man. You got to corral those buggers and put the garden gate up at times, all right? 
Go back to Adam and Eve. It's just the two of you in the garden. Remember, that's how this whole thing started. That's how God founded the family. And guess what? In 18 years, that's what you're going back to. So invest in it, the two of you. Some of you need to put a literal lock on your garden gate, okay? <laughs> Some of you need to just take the show on the road. That's my free pastoral counsel for you. No charge, okay? <laughs> Guard the garden. You keep it private and you make it fun. Um, there's a great commercial uh, that I thought just captured the art of creativity in marriage. And the funny thing is, it's a commercial for Yo Play Yogurt. You guys remember this one? I'll never forget this because it starts off, it's Yo Play Yogurt. And there's this guy, this like middle class guy, and he's like balding. And he's sitting at the dining room table eating like Yo Play Yogurt. And this woman walks in and she's all like, she's wearing a French chambermaid costume. And she comes and she says, may I sit down? And she sits on this guy's lap. And this guy's like, yeah. And she's like, would you like some yogurt? She's like, is it smooth? He's like, yeah. And he's like looking at her. Is it how you say creamy? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, where's this commercial going? All of a sudden, bam, the door slams. And the, and the, the two of them get startled. And these two 12-year-olds are standing in the doorway. And they just go, my mom and dad are so weird. And, she, and, the, and the woman's strange thing. She goes, you got home early. <laughs> I thought that's a great picture. And I'm not saying like go out and buy some like, you know, weird costume or something. What I'm saying is within the walled confines of that secret garden with your husband, when the guard gate is locked and it's just the two of you, anything goes. Anything goes. I mean, literally, wives, how far should you let your husband go? Practically speaking, as far as he wants to go, as long as you don't feel demeaned, exploited, manipulated, abused, or disparaged in the process. It requires communication, doesn't it? That's the kind of freedom that God wants to bless his married children with in the form of garden intimacy. Commitment and shame-free acceptance in a marriage it doesn't allow room for hang-ups. Or... So wives, you want to rock your husband's world tonight? At some point this week, okay? This is not my motive. Or, you know, just... When you have a private moment alone together this week, you say, time out. Our garden gate is shut. I want to ask you a question. I want to make your deepest dreams come true, so I want you to be honest. Is there anything you have dreamed of doing that you would like me to fulfill? The garden gate is now closed. And the garden is open for business. It's yours alone. A dangerous question. That kind of vulnerable, risk-taking, honest communication, some of you are getting comfortable, that's the native tongue of God's garden. It, you don't say those things in the real world unless it's like in an illicit, you know, context. But within the context of marriage, God is like, in the garden, it is good. Oh no, it is very good. And here's the deal, ladies. Don't ask that question if you don't really want an answer. <laughs> because every man, no matter how long he's been married, will have an answer for you. Okay? So don't ask unless you want to act, okay? But it is totally private and safe place for the two of you to explore and do whatever you want under God's banner. There really is only one exception to that. And it leads to our last little fox. Pornography. We got a ton of questions about porn and masturbation. Again, not surprising. And uh, this one asked this. It said, is it okay for a married couple to use porn? And I want to be as clear as, as possible. Uh, I don't want to give you my opinion. I'll just give you the Bible truth. No. Dead wrong. Whether you're single or you're married, wrong. You are literally burning down your house. There is no way I can honestly get it. First off, here's the deal. Before we just, you know, bash porn. What's the whole point of porn? What's point porn designed to do? It's to generate lust for another person, 
who isn't your spouse. That's the whole point of it. That is a cancer in marriage. And literally, single guys, it is devastating to male sexuality as God designed it and wired you. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 28. He says, I tell you the truth, anyone who looks at a woman, what? Lustfully, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. We've spent a good deal of the series unmasking the world's version of sex as this purely one-dimensional biological act, right? It's just a biological mammal's discovery channel. Jesus unmasked that and he says, no, 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 no. Sex is primarily a spiritual activity. It is as much about a purity of heart, a fidelity of body, mind, and soul with God first and then to your wife or your husband. And pornography without fail always generates lustful thoughts about another person. They may be faceless. They may be faceless. But, but the primary motivation is the flesh. It's sensuality. That's sensuality, worldly lust versus sensuousness. Biblical eroticism. In other words, in porn, you invite a stranger into your garden and it will have a toxic effect on your ability to actually be intimate as God intended, whether you are single or married. This is going to make a lot of sense for you. Single guys, listen up. I want to break this down. Here's how this works. You were created by God sexually to bring pleasure to others. Your biology bears this whole thing out. It's not just for yourself, but scripture never describes sexuality outside of the realm of what? Two people coming together. You see, from the way the man and the woman are designed, they actually get together, and now there's this oneness. That's always the goal of biblical intimacy. Two, become one. Now watch. What happens is this. When a person, man or woman, begins to look at porn and does the natural thing of masturbating to it, I mean, that's, that's the natural consequence, logical outcome of pornography, what you are doing is literally rewiring your brain and breaking down your godly sexuality design. Because your sexuality was designed to create intimacy with your wife, and when you're doing it alone by yourself with a nameless girl who, 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 who's in cyberspace, here's what's actually happening. The focus shifts from intimacy for two to intensity for me, one. And sex now, in your mind, in your biological, in your spirit, is all about intensity for me, not intimacy, together. And you literally rewire your brain and I don't want to say you can almost never go back, but you are rewiring yourself. So when a husband, in other words, who's been looking at porn, goes back to have sex with his wife, he's broken in a sense. He's rewired. He's still in bed with his wife, but he doesn't he could care less about intimacy for her. He's now trained himself to all focus on intensity for me, the kind of intensity I was getting on the computer. Well, here's the deal. There is no woman capable of generating that kind of intensity. Porn will take you to levels that there, no human being literally can compete with. And, and so the focus isn't on her, but on my intensity. So I have to access my, my mental Rolodex of 700 different images just to climb the mountain to get to where I was. And the intimacy between them ripped apart. Single guys, honestly, you think this is like a, a good outlet while you're single? Here's a deal. You are literally frying your circuits. Because when you try to now enter a real relationship, you're screwed. Honestly, and I'm not trying to scare you or, 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 or maybe I am. Porn will kill you. <laughs> it will kill your marriage and it will toxify your mind and your heart before you even start a relationship. Porn now is a $60 billion a year industry. Pornography literally worldwide, more than the NFL, the NBA, Major League Baseball and hockey combined. More revenues. More than ABC, CBS, NBC, all of the networks combined their revenues are dwarfed by porn, $60 billion a year. 
It is epidemic. Let's just take this moment and just acknowledge many of us, it's riddled throughout our relationships as singles, and it's infiltrated a lot of our gardens as married people. It just, that's, that's the reality. And I know a lot of people will say, well, you know, masturbation doesn't really hurt anybody. I mean, it's, it, it, it's not like it makes you go blind or something. You know what? That's true. That's true. It, but it will cripple you. Nothing will break down your sexuality or hollow you out, men, for, than forsaking your God-ordained role as a man who sacrifices for a woman for a cheaper, easier role as a smash-and-grab narcissist who tries to... It's all about isolation, just kind of getting off. Listen to how the message paraphrase renders 1 Corinthians 6. Listen to this. It's amazing. He says, There's more to sex than mere skin on skin. Sex is as much spiritual mystery as physical fact. As written in Scripture, the two become one. Since we want to become spiritually one with the Master, we must not pursue the kind of intimacy that avoids commitment and intimacy, leaving us more lonely than ever. Can you relate to that? The kind of sex that can never become one. Here's the truth. While porn may be mainstream in our culture, it is not normal in God's mind. It is not normal. It rewires you men sexually, and it totally degrades your sisters. The women who are enslaved in that demonic industry. First off, now you're going to regard all women, sisters, whatever, you're a bunch of body parts. By now you've probably figured out why we use the Barbie doll imagery. The legs, the chest, because that's how our world tries to train us to look at one another as commodified body object parts. Porn has no consequences. It doesn't involve anyone else but me. That's the point! It's sex that actually breeds isolation, not intimacy. So when Jesus said this, he says, if you look at a woman lustfully, you've already done it in your heart. He meant, I'm not allowing for your little body-soul dichotomy because sex is as much about this and this as it is about this. They're all related. You can deceive yourself, but don't try and pull a fast one on your father. He created sex. You remember this? He actually created it. So mental lust is adultery. You may be staring at a screen or you're sitting on a couch or you're ogling a girl in line, but you might as well have gone out and rented a prostitute. It's even sadder. You can't bond with them. They are an airbrushed apparition. You're trying to bond with a ghost. Think about that. And this is why, honestly, Jesus calls for very radical, aggressive action if you want to break free from its grip. He says this, If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is easier or better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Go ahead, next slide, Susie. And if your right hand causes you to sin, so he says, gouge out the eye, next slide. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body going to hell. In other words, for an extreme cancer, you take extreme measures. And guys, I get it. If we took Jesus' words literally right now, we'd all be walking around like pirates. Eye patch, hook, erg. Not the point. Jesus is saying, how bad do you want this? If you struggle with internet porn, install blocking software. If you, in practical terms, if you give your wife the password to the home computer, or your computer moves from a public room to a private one, a well-trafficked part of the house, how bad do you want it? Would you imagine shutting off internet access to your house? Bye-bye, Fios. No! Cut it off. Cut it off. How bad do you want to guard the garden? If cable TV is a problem, you just you cancel it. If you can't stop watching porn when you travel, don't travel to Rome. You actually rent a hotel room without a TV or you find a new job. How bad do you want it? Do you want the garden? Do you really have the, the you believe that this is the power to destroy everything? Our enemy 
thrives on compromise and on weakness. And the only way to win is honestly take the offensive and just ruthlessly annihilate the little foxes out of your life. This is not a little fox. This is a roaring lion and is devouring marriages left and right. I know. I spend time with you. I have coffee with you. I hear the stories. And again, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I'm trying to get your guard up. Single guys, I have a free resource for you. It is a book by Mark Driscoll of Mars Hill Church in Seattle. It's called Porn Again Christian, a frank discussion of pornography and masturbation. It is one of the best dissections of the issue I have ever read, and it is frank. It's not for ladies, um, and it is free. And I put it up on my blog on uh, bighairpreacher.com. You can go there today. You can read it there. You can download it, print it out. I also put links up on my blog to some filtering software for your computer and actually some online uh, purity uh, steps you can take, particularly if your addiction is online. But married men, if this is you, you got to get help. <laughs> you got to talk to your campus pastor. Because there's hope. You're not hopeless. A lot of men feel like helpless with this. You're not helpless. There is a road to recovery and restoration, and it is well lit, but you need someone to guide you. That is what your campus pastor is for. If you're married, he will help you to actually bring it out into the light, even within your marriage, which is our worst fear. But unless, if it only thrives in darkness, the stuff that kills you. We've got to bring light to it, guys. And I understand um, it's not just a male issue. I understand many women struggle with it as well. And in fact, many of you here today have been hurt by its effects. But this is a war to wage together. When two become one, you have twice the firepower. And you will need it. Because remember, marriage is about what? Holiness first. Happiness second. Last week I um, recommended this book to you. I'm sure it went up on Amazon, Sheet Music, by Dr. Kevin Lehman. And uh, I'll link this to my blog too. But he describes how a Christian husband and a wife um, he was working with actually learned how to, to defend their marriage together. He writes this, he said, A wife who's in tune with her husband's needs and desires can really help him live a holy life. I talked to one couple in which the husband had struggled for many years with an addiction to pornography. Although pornography is connected to deeper issues, isolation, loneliness, the inability to connect with others emotionally, to name a few, it can be an additional struggle for a man if his wife either isn't interested in or available for sex. The most difficult time for this man was during his wife's period because she was unavailable to him sexually. After about 10 years, she finally realized that pleasing her husband with oral sex or a simple hand job did wonders to help her husband through that difficult time. She realized that faithfulness is a two-person job. That doesn't mean a husband can escape the blame for using pornography by pointing to an uncooperative wife. That's not what he's saying. We all make our own choices. We reap our consequences. But a wife can make it much easier for her husband to maintain a pure mind. I think that's a great quote. Faithfulness is a two-person job. Marriage is first about holiness, then about happiness. Do you believe that? Some of you are like, I don't think I can believe what just happened. Did he just say hand job in church? Step over it. That just happened. Yeah, I know. Get the book. Faithfulness is a two-person job. You're in this together. Satisfy one another so that Satan will not tempt you and drive a wedge between you and curdle your gift and wound your spouse. Remember, God's gift to his married children is sex. He's a giver. And his children, we are to be givers as well. No give and take in marriage are only what? Two givers. And that's the God's honest truth. Listen, I want to pray for us. I am sure this has touched some nerves today. So um, let's just bow our heads, okay? All our campuses, bow our heads and ask God just to bless his truth. Uh, Father, just... Um, Tough talk, 
honest truth straight up. And I just want to pray right now, Father, for every man in our church, every woman, singles, married couples. Uh, Jesus, I ask that whatever was spoken today that was from you would just be planted like a seed and reach into lives and touch people. Confirm that it's from your spirit. We want to be holy and we want to be happy, but we need you. We need your Holy Spirit in us to write our heart, to change actually our motives and our our desires. But Father, I ask if there's anything that hasn't been from you or just my rantings, Father, that have not been edifying or building up or biblically based, let them just fall like dust, Lord. Cancel out those words. I pray right now, breathe hope into single folks that it's worth the wait. I pray that you will bring healing to married couples. Lord, we ask you to literally resurrect marriages from the dead with the resurrection power of your son, Jesus Christ. And we ask for freedom that you'd break addictions by your power and restore our men to be sons of God, for our women to be holy, Lord, sisters of Christ whom we love and sacrifice for. And we ask that you do it all in the name and all to the honor of your son, Jesus Christ. And all God's people agreed together and said, Amen. God bless you guys.